51st Officer's Log, 41503.7. Here we are approaching one of the many neutral zones. We're just kind of wandering through space, waiting for Starfleet to tell us what we want to... Okay, wait. No, we're... We, the stars have switched directions, and we are moving forward again. Okay, approaching a... Looks like a derelict freighter. It seems like it's uh, seems like another boring day here in Starfleet. Um, I'll go see what the menu looks like, and uh, you check this channel later for the specials and uh, time periods and which officers' ranks are allowed in first. All right, thank you very much. Here we are. Re-engage, everyone. Welcome. Uh, we are four Gen X storytellers who gather once a week to talk about, in order, our favorite episodes and in indeed every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, one of our favorite series growing up. And we're rewatching it now to see how we feel about it and what was going on in our lives at that time. I am Eric Gratton, your host for this week. The episode is, of course, Heart of Glory, the 19th episode in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation generation. Let me introduce you to, as Kate Yeager would say, our cultural bridge officers. And we'll start with her. How are you doing, Kate? I'm good, Eric. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, I'm, Here I am with many of my favorite people. I'm very excited to go on this visual acuity transmitter of a journey uh, where we finally get to see things through Jordy's eyes. Oh, and we get to talk about what it might mean for a uh, relationship between Jordy and Captain Picard, which is always a nice, interesting way of uh, gauging where the captain is on his journey as well. Uh, Jimmy G, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, sir, but I'll tell you, this podcast smells like a trap. And that's why I'm bringing along the best podcasters I know, because if I go down, I want the podcast world to be lost of some of the best ones there are. Let's do this. So you're you're saying if if you can't have us, no one can. That's right. I'm I'll a jealous it. lover. All right, Greg Tito, how are you? Doing well. I'm excited to enter the neutral zone here for the first time. Get some name checks of Romulans, Ferengi, and Klingons. We're a favorite, but this is their first appearance, of course, other than Worf. I'm very excited about it. And even Talarians, let's not forget. We don't meet them themselves, but they are referenced for the very first time. Well, here they're referenced in this. twice, but not in the same way. Both That's times. right. We'll talk about <laughs> Captain Picard's interesting little diversion there. And we have joining us a very special guest, B. Dave Walter, a, a prolific writer, performer, producer, director, host, uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast, and why don't you tell us what you're working on now and what your particular intro was to Star Trek and this series in particular. Kapla! That's the first. <laughs> you have to start off properly here. Uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. B. Dave Walters. I say words about things. You can find me wherever fine streaming content can be located. Uh, ambush. Love fest on Greg Tito here. My career exists largely in part, almost singularly due to that man. So thank you so very much, Greg Tito, for uh, opening the door and uh, lighting the match that allowed me to spread my infestation across the galaxy. So thank you. Not unlike having brought a 
semi-comatose Borg drone back on board a Federation vessel and I'm allowing them to get loose. You've uh, unleashed me on the internet. So thank you for that, my friend. I will never forget it. I like to bump it up. It's, it's you know, it's all because you had the fuel. I just lit the spark. Yeah. Uh, for me, introduction to Star Trek, my mom grew up on the original series. And so when the next generation came about, it just, it was mandatory watching. We all just like sat down and, and went through it together. So from, you know, day one, episode one, there in a 88, been there from the beginning. And did you take to it right away? I mean, we're, I think most of us were kind of in that same boat. Our parents were really into that original series. Did you Did you take to it like a fish oh, right 100%. away? 100%. You know, the, the summer between the best of both worlds, part one and two, was like the most emotionally traumatic of my entire life to, to this day, uh, which I don't know if you guys already talked about that episode, but my favorite thing that I learned about that in retrospect was they thought the show was canceled and they really had no solution for Locutus of Borg. And they were just like, here's one last FU on the way out the door. And then Paramount re-upped it and they had to like write uh, the best of both worlds part two, like in this like crazy tight timeline to film it and get back in there. So, um, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, the, I, I'd like to consider myself an, an, an OG. Uh, was there for the next gen. Equally love Deep Space Nine. Uh Almost none of the other ones have been to my taste. Voyager and Enterprise and really don't like Discovery, but those are all different conversations. So, yeah, but this is supposed to be a happy. I will allude to my disdain for Discovery contextually when talking about Heart of Glory. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the beauty of this. We're going one at a time through Next Generation. And I mean, chronologically, we won't get there for there several 50, decades, 60. right? Yeah. <laughs> if we're going to get to the discovery, right, exactly. Yeah, we got we got time. <clears throat> All right. So let's dive into it. We're talking about Heart of Glory. As I said, the 19th episode of the first season, it was first shown March 21st, 1988, which, as we know, was midway through the dominance of uh, what was the uh, song, Kate? Oh, shoot. Which one was it? No, never you can't do this. Oh, never gonna up, give you up. Never, never gonna let you down. <laughs> never gonna run around with her here. Yeah. As I understand it, this was the second week at number one for Mr. Astley and the last one will have a new one next week. However, I am here to tell you that the run of number one weeks for Good Morning Vietnam ends this week with Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach, ah! starring Matt McCoy, who we will meet in season three <laughs> as one of our Beta Zed uh, new members and a love interest of Deanna Troy. Was that the first one without Steve Gutenberg? It oh. is the first one without oh, Gutenberg. Wow. He got too it big also for features Rene Abergenois, which is uh, also important to this particular conversation. Do y'all do y'all remember Police Academy fondly? I mean the uh, series, I, yeah, but not this one. I mean, come on, <laughs> Tackleberry, Hightower, like come on, you know, yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got to. Uh, Ed, that is that is right I at the top right. of the list of a uh, uh, under Revenge of the Nerds and Porkies for '80s franchises that could never ever 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 be done today. But yes, mm -hmm, hundred percent. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you. I think the the only scene that kind of holds up in in Porkies that you could deal with anymore is that uh, that laughter scene in the nurse's office, which is still classic and and I think un. Uh, uh, 
you don't need to quite dive anywhere to defend you could, the you could make a string of it yeah but a string of tiktoks of out of all of those franchises would kind of be the salvageable <laughs> uh salvageable content yeah mm. fair <laughs> the number one uh, novel of the time was the icarus agenda by robert ludlam i was never a ludlam reader if any of you were and want to join in just jump right i just in. remember seeing that name uh, on bookstore shelves and being like i am oh. not going to read that it does not have <laughs> dragons or swords at your local B. Dalton? <laughs> yes, exactly. Or B. Walden Books. Walden Books, yes. I mean, he did write the Bourne series, though. And he did, like, some interesting stuff with vampires, but they were, like, parasites. It was, you know, you know. Like I say, I don't I know. know. I, I hadn't even remembered he was the Bourne. We, we tend yeah, not to do a whole mm-hmm. lot of looking up here, just talking about our feelings <laughs> as I Gen tried Xers. to read one of the Bourne books, and I couldn't get past the first chapter. I mean... Well, that's what movies are because for. it was bad. I'm like he forgot a bunch of stuff too. So there you go. It's it's almost more like you lived it, not that you didn't read it. Yeah, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. And then we get back into the album charts with the second run of number one positioned weeks for the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing, oh. uh, and it'll stay there for nearly two more months before being replaced by. We'll get to it in four or five episodes, I would Jennifer Gray is still up in the time of her life. I'm just saying. (laughs) I have to say, that's a movie that I did not see until adulthood and definitely had that, I'm so sorry, this is important to all of you, why moment when I watched it. I now, it's been long enough since I've seen it that it has its own nostalgia because I remember that time I watched it and thought it wasn't as good as everybody thought it was and I'm really nostalgic for that sort of a feeling right. once again. Uh, but yeah, that, that movie did not catch me the first time. I was not allowed. Oh, this week not I've allowed. seen the phenomenon of the generation coming after us having actually enjoyed those Fantastic Four movies at the turn of the century. And and being up in arms that they would recast like I, I see that kind of opinion. And I'm like, oh, we all just really like what we saw when we were 10. Like, that's fair. Uh, but going back and rewatching this has has shown me that some of the things that we liked when we were 10 are still pretty fucking great. Wait, hang on a second. Were you saying that you're feeling nostalgic for feeling like a hipster for looking down on people for liking dirty dancing? Because that feeling is still available <laughs> for you like right now. I mean, it's. Correct. Correct. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, I just miss being cooler than yeah. other people. I've been on the um. internet. You're allowed to look down on people to this very day. It's, it's all right. I'll, I'll back you on it. Pick a franchise. I'm with you. I'll, I'll come. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> I carried a watermelon. That's awesome. All right. So this episode getting into it was written by Maurice Hurley, who we remember had a dramatic introduction to the series, having his script completely rewritten so thoroughly on Haydn Q that he requested his name be removed. That's right. And this time he wrote the script at the last minute in two days. And perhaps that's why it leans so heavily on some tropes from other genres throughout uh, history that Star Trek largely... uh, cribs from which are the western and exploration genres and there's some uh, laziness that goes into that that i'm sure we'll get into and this is like episode two or three of him being head writer right yes so it was all on his shoulders uh, to to keep this moving and if he didn't write that in two days and have a long hallway scene for about 10 minutes this might not have worked and I think it's the fourth episode in a row that was delivered delivered very late in the process script wise. So that's interesting to note as well. That is a very, very long hallway. I'm glad you brought it up because it is just I know we're not there yet, but you you mention it. And dear God, I'm still in that hallway. 
it's something of a railroad uh, format freighter. Yes. You know, to be, to like be a railroad apart. They, they do want us to know <laughs> that things have fallen apart, too. You can yes. tell because there's a lot of steam. <laughs> it's got steam heat. Um, Rob Bowman directed, which is a name we will continue to be familiar with through this. And when we go into the spinoff, The X-Files, uh, which I still maintain uh, due to the production uh, crossover, is possibly in the same cinematic. It's not not. You know, it's hundreds of years apart. So um, it's not not. <laughs> It's all in the snow we globe from going. the same, St. Elsewhere. You know. It's all been St. Elsewhere the entire time. You are correct. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Look it up, kids. Dwayne, Dwayne McDuffie's unified theory. They're like, what's a St. Elsewhere? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What is a snow globe? Oh, my goodness. We move into the incredible, again, collection of guest stars in this one uh it's no different from our more recent ones we get the chance for the first time in star trek history to talk about vaughn armstrong as captain chorus y'all familiar with vaughn no what has he done he has played 12 different characters in the star trek the most so far damn yep the most of anyone so far everything but uh the original series or discovery or picard yet i believe Damn. And this is his very first. And I think he's terrific in this one. We'll talk more about his performance as we move forward. Uh, Charles Hyman was Conmel. He did some good TV around this time. You know, this is not the first time we've mentioned Briscoe County Jr. on the show. <laughs> Lots of theater. The Lucille Lortel in New York. Oh, I the there. Dallas Theater Center. He had a Helen Hayes nom midway through career. Good career for this one. Um and then, you know, we get into the episode itself. What did you all think about the uh, pre-credits uh, scene getting us towards that neutral zone again? Uh, there's a lot of um, rushing towards unknown danger, which uh, always gets the heart rate going, but immediately uh, feels like a trap upon, yeah. up, upon visiting it. Uh, it's just too perfect. There has been some sort of conflict I can't tell you more than that. Get there right away. Get there right away. They're fighting. They're fighting. Go stop them. The, when Worf turns around, it's like the first couple of days, Worf turns around, he's like, there was a battle. Like immediately <laughs> he is on edge and he's like, this is going to be fun for me. I don't know about you all, but I'm going to enjoy this episode. And you know that from, from the get go. And I love, I thought that was uh, well done by Hurley to be like, what's this episode going to be about? Let's just write it. Let's just write this episode out, and this is what yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's I'm um, I I I write I write uh, a goodly amount of sci-fi and in TV and film and things of that nature, and it, and a lot of times it's difficult with especially the more technology enters into something, the more difficult it is to be able to tell something compelling. Like I'm very much working on a on a story right now that is very much a modern story, no sci-fi whatsoever. But there's a point that you're like, why don't they just call the cops? So then we need to like work in like why that's not possible. Like they lose their phone or the phone doesn't work. But just because you're like, they would just call the police. That's what any sane human would do. And in this, when they're like, there's life signs uh, all the time, we're like, there's Klingons. There's three of them. One of them's dying. They're in that part of the ship. They're right over there. So we had to be like, not that. So you could have the surprise. And you're like, there's. Life signs, what are they? We don't know because reasons, but you should go look in person alone. <laughs> <It's> like, okay. <laughs> yeah. With okay. your three best. Yeah. 
That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and we're just going to like test something that Jordy has been noodling with because reasons also. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I, I feel like. But, it, but you got to turn it off to get on the uh, transporter, though. He's been noodling with it, but it can't be I active while you're being transported. You. And this would be difficult things. to ever prove. Either between the, the tight timetable for that, they had that scene thought out to fit somewhere else completely different or they shot something else that didn't work and they had to go back and fix it with with that because it it is very much bolted on for something that is not going to come up again literally for years and only ever come up two more times period it is very much like this seems as good a place as any to show what space counter sees you know so And they don't show Jordy, or they don't show Data or Riker talking directly to Jordy while he's looking at them. And it certainly looks like it's not Data, but his stand-in that yeah. is standing there. It is, it is, it is, it is. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner's uh, right. photo stand-ins in both yep. instances. Yep, makes complete yep. sense. All right, so we're here. We're at this abandoned freighter. It turns out we are uh, on the ship now are Data and Riker and Jordy. We get the, uh, Kate, what was the, the name of the piece of technology? Uh, the Visual Acuity Transmitter. Ooh, the Visual Acuity Transmitter. Or the VAT. <laughs> the VAT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. The value added uh, tax for the Visual Acuity Transmitter is probably rather It's large. actually pre-Fallout, so I guess Fallout stole it from, from them. Yeah, that makes sense. And all I know is that it we're supposed to see what Jordy sees, and what Jordy sees is an acid trip. <laughs> right. Like I've 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 been there, and it's it's fun, uh, but not conducive to science. Well, the question that I had, or or, or, conducive, or conducive to science. <laughs> the question that I have is is as we watch this two dimensional representation of a two-dimensional representation that Picard and uh, company are watching, does Jordy perceive it in three dimensions? You know, both of his eyes, both sides of, you know, are, uh, you know, one would think attached. Is it still very different from what he sees the way a picture is for what we see, where there is huge untranslatable differences and all you can, if all you can see is a two-dimensional representation of it. What do you guys think? It has yeah. to be. It's being pumped right into his mind, and he's capable of gauging depth and engineering. So it, it must be, yeah, yeah, very different. Yeah, no matter how be. close they try to make it, it's nice of Picard to think yeah. that he is finally learning about Jordy. Uh, but as they go on through that conversation, there are some really nice moments of acknowledgement that, you know, thanks for asking, but no, that's nothing close to what my experience is. Maybe, maybe this line of thinking will get you closer and Picard kind of apologizing and saying, Oh, all right, I'll try to think of it that way. Like it, it seems like a, a nice way to teach people in power, how to ask questions the right way without saying that that's what they're doing. Uh, I, I kind of respected the, the effort here uh, for what they don't tend to do when they introduce alien races. I would say two things that despite um Despite Gene Roddenberry's, you know, numerous personal shortcomings, as exemplified by all the miniskirts on the bridge that were still there, 
uh, he was still trying to be as progressive as he could. I mean, I think overall he still owed a tremendous debt for some of the things he did in the original original uh, Star Trek, the original series. And I think this was his attempt at portraying a quote unquote disability in a way that was not debilitating, you know? Um, so, you know, good, good on him. Good on him for the attempt, you know, and, and even even <laughs> right. prominently featuring a blind main character even uh, in, in and of itself was was a, a good thing for for him to do at the time. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm 100 percent there with you on that one. I kind of wrote it down further as, you know, uh, number one, Eric, who cares on this one? Why do you think it did have to be turned off for transport? What do you think they were trying to say <laughs> with that? That uh, my, my what I what I want it to be moving forward is that the transport actually acts like a little mini EMP and anything that is running at the time of its use is thereby fried and, and unable to be used anymore. So everything has to be completely powered off 100 percent for transport before you turn it back on. And that's what we scanning. see. Right. Let's, let's call it that. I mean, scanning. I have a th- I have a theory, but I- I've been soaking up all the oxygen here, so I want to hear everybody else. <laughs> That's why first. you're here, Dave. <laughs> I I think it's honestly a, a symptom of Maurice Hurley just trying to write lines. Because uh, now that I know that he had to write this in two days, I feel like he's like <laughs> everything makes more sense to me in this episode because every action is announced. Uh, everyone says what they're doing, what they're going to do, and then they have to shot shoot it that way. Uh, and so I think this was just a, another example of that being like, all right, I need to turn it off now and I will be turning it back on soon. And like in Maurice Hurley's brain, he's like, that was, you know, uh, 0.6 seconds of screen time that I just ate up by having him say that. Um, but as far as I, I really just love what I liked about it was Picard is another example of Picard, uh, you know, getting feedback, acknowledging it and changing and moving on. We saw that a couple of times recently uh, in regards to how he was treating, uh, uh, you know, Troy and Crusher. Uh, with it with with gentle nudges uh, and and course correcting and I I appreciated that but I also just liked his um, uh, you know fight of fancy here of wanting to learn more about his crew member and and seeing them in a new way being like wait this is how you perceive the world that's so fascinating I want to learn more and Riker having to be like uh, I don't want to stop this love fest but uh, you know we do have a mission here uh, to go on and you know he doesn't even finish the sentence <laughs> yeah. I do uh, two things because I forget the other point that I was making a second ago about Gene Roddenberry. But for this, I think the reason why he turned it off is I think he knew neckbeards were a thing in 88. And if it was on, you're like, why can't they see what's in transport? Well, they can't see it because his brain is molecules. And then, you know, years from now, when Barclay's transporting and that thing comes up and bites him in the transport in the transporter field, that's supposed to be like a crazy reveal. So that's why I think he turned it off. But the other thing I was going to say about George uh, Gene Roddenberry that I'd forgotten Mm -hmm. was he was adamant that there would never be any interpersonal conflict on board the Enterprise. Uh, Ronald D. Morris talked about how frustrating it was in the early episodes because they always had to get along. Right. So that's why everybody is so just like, oh, okay, dope. Like, oh, <laughs> Jordy's vision. <laughs> Even when they're completely wrong, Jordy's like, no, that's not how it is at all. But okay, thank you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and they're like, no, no, but thank you. <laughs> you know, so. Well, yeah. and, you know, they have the built-in excuse of chain of command as well. So, I mean, it's not the only time you'll see someone in a subordinate position smile at the person above them getting it all wrong. Um, <clears throat> you know, that is a, a, a key component of drama uh, kind of all over. But it, it's certainly not played that, that way here. Uh, so, so, they're on the ship. 
They have a three-mile hallway to get down and narrate as they're going, which is useful because they are walking through um, very high concentrations of stage fog. That fog machine does a <laughs> lot of work in that in that act. Oh, incredibly taxed. Yeah, it is on like just. Can you crank it up to 45? Like it needs to go way above. We need it happening as much as possible. It created a lot of drama having to walk through all of that gas. I mean, when combined with that sound design, it really did. I like the fact that they get to a a junction and we find out that there are like three ways to go and every way is just as dangerous as the way before it. So we're at this (laughs) impasse. And so the decision is through the fog like we've already been through the mist the the enemy we know versus the enemy we don't uh but then they end up in that um well first Jordy sees that the bulkhead is getting weaker oh, which right. is a, an amazing uh skill that you know something visual that that we didn't know and i love that he that moment with him and Riker where he's like it's it's literally right there and we get the opportunity to see what he sees. And it is literally right there. And how frustrating <laughs> that must be to be able to see things that are right in front of your face and that others can't perceive the same way that you do. Uh, really interesting. But he says he gives it about five minutes uh, or less. And they seem very chill about that. What was that? Like, yeah. so chill about that. They, Starfleet, yo. They <laughs> seem not to understand that the, the Energizer might not work. The transporter might not work. Or this <laughs> like was they're, they're... all three of their uh, fear tests at Starfleet. <laughs> <laughs> so they had already dealt with this kind of pressure This was before. their Kobayashi Maru. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it oh, almost oh. feels uh, like wrongly played uh, in some ways. Like like Rob Bowman didn't direct it the right way because they're like, oh, about how long do you think we have? And, and they're like, five minutes. And they're like, oh, yeah, I thought it was going to be less. So that's, that's plenty of time. We should, we should be out of here. No, <laughs> why did you even bother telling us about it? <laughs> Well, and, you know, in, in the wonderful moment that it is, you know, Data says, wait, stop. I will go through because that will save you from the toxic gases. Okay, question here, though. Maybe this is yeah. the pandemic speaking, <laughs> but shouldn't masks be standard issue for away trips? Like, anytime you're going somewhere where you don't know what the surface is going to be like, or you're going into a ship with unknown properties, like, shouldn't a mask just be a thing that's there? They'll just be cured when they get energized back. Yeah. You know, um, I wonder to what extent the idea was there's so many different ways we can go and they're all equally dangerous was supposed to be like a metaphorical nod to the problem that they were going to have with the Klingons once they brought them Mm. on board, that every way we go is equally dangerous. Yeah, I like that. I mean, well, look at- it's easy to look back on it 30 years later and be like, brilliant. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly yeah, what I was yeah, doing. Of course, yeah. That, yeah, it's a literature. Yes. I like the red costumes um, is kind of where I, I fell on this one. I really enjoyed it, but I didn't I didn't even come close to seeing that. And I think that is a fantastic uh, uh, scene uh, breakdown. I think that makes complete sense. And uh, I really really takes some of the fun out of making fun of it but I'm going to move forward <laughs> no it very much might have just been derpy 80s sci-fi television like, I'm, yeah, absolutely. I'm, like the odds no, are but I, best 50-50 it I is love, best I love, the coin toss <laughs> no I love the approach I, I, and I, it makes me think that there is a, a bit of uh, 
I don't know, um, agency behind what I think is the funniest moment in the in the episode, which is right after Data says that he walks through it and then comes back and asks the two of them to go ahead and walk through it with me. It's 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 fine. Come on. But before that, he says these things about the toxic thing. You won't have to spend all that much time there. And and we as performers know that in the late 80s, that stage fog was pretty toxic. <laughs> so they're all saying those lines while they're breathing in some of the worst chemicals that were allowed to be used in Ronald Reagan's that. America. Yeah, I love how, how Riker and Jordy are sweating too. Like that they they're like, all right, we need to. It's hot. Let's act hot for a while, would you? Well, that light is intense. Like that is a moth's dream come true. All of that fog. Yeah, and I'm not light. sure that uh, Riker was acting at all. I think they may have put him under a sauna. Like that guy was sweating for real. They gave him a ghost pepper. They're like, here you go. Just take this. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting, and I, I keep thinking of it every time we talk about uh, Commander Riker, is that our um, our Klingon, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Von Armstrong, uh, was called in for Riker. He was one of the, oh, really? I think, six or seven actors that were eventually featured <laughs> in The Next Generation that had been called in initially for Riker. To, uh, uh, chorus, so the, the captain? Be, the guy yeah. that was the captain? It's like, the, I can't yeah. hear you, Greg. What's that? Yes, the the commander, I think, is is what his... Or I guess he is a captain, but then they call him commander a couple times. It's all very confusing. I wanted to bring up one thing that occurred to me here as they they ask um, Worf to uh, join them in... in, Or as Worf asked to join them in sickbay. Um, I I found myself both happy and uh, surprised that they didn't ask Worf to go with uh, Tasha... uh, to the enter uh, the the I keep saying the energizer because I'm a bunny, <laughs> but the um, transport was an room. inside joke. Uh, no, 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 it's just me. Fucking casuals. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I'm a little high and I haven't you know watched regularly in 25 years. But so we're watching it and I I wonder in the world of Starfleet two things because I couldn't figure this out when I looked. The difference between the tactical officer and the security chief at this point, because earlier it turns out in canon in Starfleet, they were initially the same job. But right now, Worf is the tactical officer and Tasha is security chief. But I couldn't see whether tactical officer still includes security on board the Enterprise and that she would be reporting to him. Or if it's completely different and she's security chief on the Enterprise and he is more dealing with now the weapon systems, the, the situation like that. Yeah. And, and because of that, I, I'm unsure whether I want him to have been sent uh, to the... Uh, transporter room? Uh, transporter. Transporter room. Well, thank you. I definitely went energizer. 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 <laughs> no, just don't say energizer. Um, don't say energizer. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Don't think of the pink elephant. And um, it was muddy, uh, but it's a nice dramatic moment when he instead well, asks to go meet them. Well, at, I mean, the, I would, uh, at that point, she's definitely his superior officer, and him being tactical is like the pew pew outside the ship, and her being security's inside right. the ship. But after she dies, he's definitely both. When right, you know, so it's they like divide enough to come back together again essentially 
Yeah. HR but, decides once she's gone, you know, it's a redundant we'll position. We'll just put them back together. Yeah. It seemed to me to be more of a central casting issue. Uh, because one of the notes I wrote is, why is Tasha at the transporter room at all? Don't they have transporter chiefs? I mean, wasn't that O'Brien was a transporter chief? That's a title. So why do right, they need the security going chief security, going in I there thought. doing any transporting buttons? Is there no unions in the Federation? <laughs> <laughs> no, I assume she's down there to be there in her capacity as security chief. Yeah, she mm-hmm. can stand to the side, ready to vase. Now she's... Uh, <laughs> She's messing around. Oh, with she was running the thing. I didn't. I was. I was busy <laughs> taking notes at that point. Apparently, yeah. I yep. think they just ran a money in central casting. Like, we can't have anybody else. I but absolutely the, agree with you. But one yeah. of the cast people in there. Yep. And she gets to have a moment. You get a really great close up. And I, I must admit, I was watching because now, uh, I guess it only gets so HD because of how it was shot. But I was watching on my HD TV, and I distinctly was like, "Man, Denise Crosby's got beautiful eyes." Like somehow I never noticed this. Like the dramatic oh, pan in where she's all sweating, thinking she's lost them all. I was like, "Wow, okay." Never yeah, those noticed that. for days. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I think it was a, a combination of things, which again, I, I, I would love to say was intentional but again the odds are best 50 50 that theoretically these klingons are allies and guests and yet they're dangerous so send our soldier down our top soldier but send no backup because like theoretically Riker and jordy and data are there if this goes sideways so right you know it's like a semi warm welcome kind of ish to our frenemies because I feel like at that point, you know, the Federation and the Klingons were kind of like the U.S. and the Soviet Union, like going into World War II, where they're like, but it was before, like, that had been resolved in the in the films, right? So by all accounts, we were just told that they're at peace now, and we haven't actually seen it first. So that's why I really liked that reveal with their, you know, once finally Data opens up that door and you get that dramatic thing. I mean, everybody who's a Star Trek fan will know from Jump, oh shit, these are Klingons. And then he immediately walks uh, into uh, the light, and it's such a great reveal to have Riker be like, Klingons. Well, and he turns that into almost three yeah, syllables. Exactly. Like he's almost chews that word. He just chews it up uh, and spits it out. And and I think it's it's earned. Like because as a Star Trek fan, you're like, whoa, okay, we finally get to see, uh, you know, because we're hot on the t- the tales of uh, Christopher Lloyd and start in search for Spock and how amazing that you know villain turn was and and uh you know it was really great to kind of see those costumes again uh and and have them come but all that being said as soon as they come back to this after the act break uh there is no diplomacy whatsoever i was really taken aback that they're like oh uh whatever we're gonna i'm gonna take charge immediately and ask one question to which the klingon has like a one-word answer of like no we're alive that's it like we're the only ones here no like hey you know everything everything like i felt like they should have at least tried to have some type of i don't know parlay or like is it okay if we see to your your sick well plus one to that when they tell wharf outright we're not here for peace also will you show us around and he's like yeah all right <laughs> no <that's- laughs> Yes, brother. It's tactical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you want to see where the weapons to... are? So I will say this, though. Remember saying that I would talk about what I don't like about Discovery that directly dovetails to this in the way the Klingons, by and large, have been done dirty across the Star Trek fan- uh, franchise in, to perpetuity. 
except for the war with the Klingons during Deep Space Nine, and they still got done dirty then as well. We're told that they are, you know, the warrior master race. You know, they're ancestral enemies from the original series. But like when the Klingons show up, you go, ooh, the Klingons, you know? But the Worf effect is real. We always are told how tough Worf is only because the bad guys beat the brakes off of him constantly. And then you're like, oh, that's a bad guy. That guy's tougher than Worf. And the Klingons get that always they end up kind of being these pot drunkards that used to be tough back in the day and this is the only time you ever see any klingons that are really truly about that life and in part of the thing that i hated so much about discovery is basically their klingons are borderline blackface like they take white actors and put these like prosthetics on them with these huge broad noses and this jet black skin and i'm like y'all like all the klingons in next gen except michael doran were white people and it's fine lursa and Bator were white people and it's fine these guys it's fine they're klingons and it's dope you didn't have to go with the whole thing they've got going in discovery that i was just like Ugh, no also the show's grim dark and awful i only watched season one i heard two and three get better i'll get to it eventually so the thing that i do like about this one is you see them as brave tactical warriors having won the fight when they were outmatched by the bird of prey having smuggled the weapon on board being willing to fight to the death although he inexplicably lets wharf draw down on him at the last second but whatever at least these klingons were actually tough like those two you're like if they got loose on the ship that would be bad which is usually not at all how you feel about the klingons no matter how tough they're supposed to be True. And I think even the director made sure that the phasers needed to hit the Klingons multiple times uh, and try to show that they were uh, fighting with their all. Uh, But those poor security guys, man, they uh, those goons. Even like even with the war with the Klingons in Deep Space Nine, when when they breached the when they breached the bridge. The Starfleet officers, humans, are still taking them hand to hand with the old like Starfleet double axe handle. Like Cisco's dropping all these Klingons, and I'm like, no, I get that, I get that. But he's supposed to get run over by the Klingon breaching crew, you know. But yeah, but they but they did a much better job with the Jim Hadar though. Even though they kind of won their fair share of fights against the Jim Hadar, they were more the superlative warrior master race than the Klingons ever were. Maybe it's because they were just hooked on Ketracel White and not Blood Wine. But okay. You know, <laughs> victory's life for the record. Again, maybe it's because of where we are in in history and and the world. But for some reason, watching it this time, I got this sort of like they want to make Klingons great again. Like they feel like there was just something about like taking over the ship that was just like we refuse to be weak. We refuse to be this. We refuse and and Worf having to to fight that uh, because of his, of his understanding of where they are and the bloodlust and, and where he comes from. But also he says something about like, well, maybe that's not where we're supposed to be anymore. It's an interesting sort of mm. philosophical question along with the question of, of, and I, I'd never thought of it in those terms ever before. Uh, but certainly recent things are, I was sort of like, yeah, you're you're very sad that people don't want you to be able to do bad things anymore. That must be hard. Right. It's 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 just that it's a little a little difficult uh, to watch in. It's a little difficult to watch when when you attach it to an entire race like they do with the Klingons. Right. 
like we do with the Indians and Westerns, like we do with uh, various uh, South Pacific populations and things like uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, right? When, when you see, uh, you know, predominantly uh, white conservatives storm the, the, the um, uh, Capitol building, you also have, you know, the, the white people in, in uniform in, in this instance, uh, along with other races in uniform fighting against them. Whereas since Star Trek makes every race monogamous or, you know, homogenous all the way across, it's really often frustrating to watch how they deal with, uh, for instance, the Klingons, because you just have this wharf character who's, uh, you know, it, it can be frustrating for me to, to, to watch the Klingons hand. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I, I'll, I'll disagree with you there because in this episode, you have the captain of the ship and Worf who are very clearly being like, no, we reject these two. These two are criminals. And, you know, Worf is tempted. He is very much tempted by what they present in front of him, you know, as being like, you can be, we understand you on a visceral level, probably more than any of the, anybody else on this ship right now. Uh, and he rejects it. He's like, yes, I can still get angry, but I control it. And I don't think what you've got is actually any better than this amazing, you know, uh, uh, role that I have here. And even you know the fact that I am Klingon raised by my humans, like he's like, I'll take that over what you're offering. And that's what he does at the but end. And I, I feel to like Eric's point, it's a good concept. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, Greg. No, but to, go ahead. To Eric's yeah. point, though, no. Worf does actively advocate that they get a chance to die with their boots on, though. You know, that he kind of was like, okay, there's no place for you in this new world. However, (laughs) you do deserve to kind of get put out to pasture, you know, in a way that will be sufficiently glorious. You know, I will say that was the, the main thing that I liked about the Dominion, again, sorry to keep hopping ahead to other franchises, is everything was so homogenous that Starfleet is shown to be this multicultural melting pot in their enemies are always very singular, which I, again, I, I think, uh, Gene Roddenberry did that on purpose. You know, that like our diversity is our strength, sure. but Romulans are only Romulans. Klingons are only Klingons. And in past a certain point, it did make sense that you're like, no, I mean, even if, if we're going to be the, the Axis powers to, to your, to your NATO, the Legion of doom to your justice league, that somewhere along the way, some of us would be like, wait a second, we're tired of losing to Starfleet. Like that was always my problem with the Borg, who were my favorite alien race for many years. The Daleks have eclipsed them now, but I love that. I love the Borg. But <laughs> I'm like one Borg sure. cube keep keeps making it to the five yard line here. I just feel somewhere along the way the collective would be like, wait a second, let's send three and we'll be done with this tomorrow night. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like we will clean out the Alpha Quadrant. <laughs> it's like it's like freaking Voltron one row beast kept showing up I'm like wait a week and send seven you'll win like whatever your row beast production <laughs> capabilities are or don't wait for them to all join together <laughs> yeah. during a musical montage you know, yeah. Take them out. yeah 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 just trust me on this trust me on this just give it give it give it hit them now you know yeah so they've clearly never was... played Warcraft 3 where you you know you got to build up your 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 your, your forces before well, you send them out you can't just send can scouts the whole time interrupt for just a second and beat a dead Go horse for it, Jimmy. uh i think the problem with the klingons from the very beginning as as has been brought up is the problem with all of the alien races is that they are homogenous in one note and they're all meant to not be a reflection of 
they're all you know a reflection of us and this is some some bad part of us that we you know they're the razor's edge that that uh to cut us but the klingons the, the problem with their the way they were written from the very beginning was they were this warrior race which is very one note and it, it was always going to lead them to you can't win because all you want to do is this one thing because they didn't allow them to have uh, uh, any kind of real depth and of course like Worf's dad, who was not a warrior, he was a lawyer. <laughs> uh, there, of course, are all kinds of different Klingons. There have to be Klingons who act, as we learn that you've never heard Shakespeare until you hear it in the native Klingon. This is right. when we start to really get an appreciation for another race. And, uh, and in this one, this episode, I love a one side that we do get to see the promise of the badasses show up, but also... It's like you're of course you're going to lose because this is all you are and you're going to lose if we learn nothing from Lord of the Rings it's that the the weaker of us are the ones that will rise up and save us they're the ones who are stronger and there's no way that a race that is about war is ever really going to be all that strong because that's just it's too one dimensional and all the diversity is going to make you stronger so and this, I poo-poo the idea that you know you need to celebrate a warlike race. They need to be put down, not because the Klingons need to, but that part of the narrative needs to just be put down. Like, no, this was silly. And Worf is the ascension of that. Of like, there's way more to this race than the, the silliness of their samurais, and that's all they are. I think some of that's in this episode, even though because these guys are of this warrior cast. They want to, they want to fight and, you know, live the way we're supposed to be. They try to play both sides though, right? Yeah. But then they're also like, wait a second, you were on this colony. Wasn't that a farming colony? Yeah. And that was the first time I was like, oh yeah, of course, Klingons have to have farmers. Of course, they need to have food. They can't all be warriors. So then I was well, like, was maybe this is just though, right? a subset. Maybe this is a group of, you know, uh, a, a warrior cast that feels this way. And that's all that we've seen because we've only seen you know, through the context of interstellar warfare, oh, really. Sure, right? but, but like, that's that's a uh, revisionist history, right? Revisionist writing. It's going back to try and make that better. Like this is what you would do now to make the Klingon story better. Is exactly what you're saying, mm -hmm. right? That's not how it was ever written up until this episode. It was just all they were was a warrior race. Yeah, I mean, the people we saw were always just warriors, and that's it. Yeah, they're warriors with subclasses. Yeah, I mean, like when they go to the home world, and like you know, Kim Peck wants to uh, uh, the the he got shot down for being too fat, and then he comes back and he's old, and she's like, "You're still too fat." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, again, it it is that noble savage trope which mm -hmm. is difficult because again it's difficult when it's only ever through the lens of look how quaint these savages are and in the klingons never get an equal shake in star trek because arguably no race but the humans ever get an equal shake even our primary mm -hmm. viewpoint of the vulcans spock actively is trying to go after his human side and not his Vulcan side. Every time we see these other races, it is a reflection of what the humans don't want to be, even in their allies, uh, which I think is still a major shortcoming of the franchise in the grand scheme of things, because you never get a truly viable alternative through anything other than Starfleet, which again, 
to crap on Discovery more, which is a whole other thing that I can talk about extensively. <laughs> if the whole thing is the beauty of the vision of Starfleet, which goes back to, you know, the 60s with Green Roddenberry's vision of a truly integrated society. Right. And anything outside of that is an outlier and anything outside of that is un- undesirable. Discovery goes out of its way to crap on the idea of the beauty of Starfleet constantly. So then I'm like, what are we out here for? What's the point of any of this in Sorry to detour on my detour to go all the way back to something you said right at the beginning <laughs> with Captain Picard with Geordi. This was when he was transitioning out of being an asshole. Like, you remember how, like, Homer Simpson at the beginning was just this surly mean dude that just kind of became this affable idiot over time? You know, Picard mm-hmm. was this, like, straight right. lace hard ass who over time, you know, becomes the captain we all know and love. And I think this was kind of one of those first times that we got that wonder in him, like the the archaeologist explorer in him that was like, whoa, it's like that? Really? Like, wait, what? What? You know? Uh, which was nice to see. <laughs> Definitely. And, and c- felt close enough to his, uh, you know, at this point, he's, he's starting to treat the bridge crew as colleagues as well as subordinates. And he felt close enough that he could like we've seen him do, as Greg mentioned in other places, be wrong in such a way that he wasn't going to ruin anything and he could, you know, show the rest of the crew the right way to deal with it, even at the same time. Picard is turning into such a terrific character, as as we all enjoyed watching in real time the first time it was on. We get to watch yeah. it again. Because that, that wonder that, that he has for, for Jordy's visual acuity device uh, is the same that he has in that small conversation at the con when he's, like, talking... You don't really sure what he's talking about at first, but he's describing what it felt like to see the the Klingon death ritual uh, and 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 his mm-hmm. you know respect and admiration and also wonder for it. And you see Riker also having that same like, oh, maybe I want to fight with these guys uh, uh, later on alongside of them. Like there's this uh, thing, and I think that's echoed in 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 his fascination with Geordi as well uh, that he wants to learn more, as you said about his bridge crew and 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 get that you know, oh, these are not just the the uh, the first impressions like he's going beyond those first impressions now and revising his idea of who these people are along with the audience, which which I appreciate. Now, I feel bad for Tasha Yar in this episode because I feel like Maurice Hurley was trying to do that with three characters. I feel like he was trying to do it with Jordy, trying to do it with Worf. We definitely get more of Worf's backstory and feelings uh, than we do in any other episode so far. And poor Tasha Yar just gets to tell everyone what's happening. But you know what's funny? Michael Dorn says he doesn't like this episode. He feels like that's all Worf does. He's like, Worf talks a lot, uh-huh. but that's what he just does. He's like, I feel like this. And then that's <laughs> it. You know, whereas the director was like, yay, this is the best Worf episode ever. And Michael Dorn's like, <laughs> well, I read that, that Dorn had that reaction and I, and I felt bad for him. And, and I read it after I had watched and written down a couple of notes about how much I loved his silent acting in this episode. Um, and how still and contemplative he is during the uh, rebel Klingons um, recruitment attempts, conversation, uh, while he's both receptive and doubtful at the same time. Like, the looks he gives are really strong acting. Like, it's, it's not soap opera like so much of this is uh which is not unstrong acting i'm just saying this is this is a a performance from him that i was really impressed with and i was i was 
not surprised to hear that he didn't like it. Like, I, I don't think the lines gave him very much to do, but I think his performance uh, was was pretty impressive beyond that. Can we so. talk about that beautiful scene? I, I love that scene where they're, you know, it's sort of the... Uh, physical manifestation of peer pressure, right? Where Worf is in <laughs> mm-hmm. the foreground and then you've got them on either side of his shoulders and it's just, it's an oppressive shot. It's really, it's suffocating, it's intimate and it's just really effective and you can see, again, yeah, that silent acting as he, as they really push all of those buttons. I just thought that was a great scene. I love that they're telling his, what his emotions are. And he's not denying it, right? They're like, this right. is what you're feeling. Like, this is what happened to you. This is your biography. And and it's a nice thing because, you know, we could have just had that told to us outright like Worf did in previous scenes where he's like, this is what my life was and, and blah, blah, blah. But they're telling it. And there's something really dramatic about those two uh, just narrating his life after having spent 45 minutes with him. I could be mistaken about this, but there's a non-zero chance. Those are the first two Klingons he's ever met. Because you know, he's raised on the farming colony and then he went straight into Starfleet and then he's here. And this is the first time they show up in Starfleet. So, I mean, there might be some, um, you know, apocryphal stuff that I'm not aware of. But, you know, you're all like, hey, Klingon warriors, the cool kids. And they're like, gee, Klingon warriors. They get the armor. It's the first time you see them in the armor. Like, they just roll in looking so dope. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want to be with them. Too. But I, it's so deliberate, though, because I think uh, Chorus and his, his wingman there uh, share a look after that scene, which <laughs> is wonderful because it's like see i told i knew i'd be able to get him mm-hmm. and he's he's one of us we, we can we have an ally here and it's you know the wingman being like oh you're silver tongue badass but it's all like through this this one look and uh you know that's the first time you're like these guys no they're they're they're, they're maybe not on the up and up i do love how cheerful sharon uh the the second one is the entire like he always looks so happy through the whole thing like he just looks like he's having a blast from the first moment he yeah. shows up on camera to the second he dies it is just green lights and high signs <laughs> it's true and there there's some really interesting parallels drawn between these two characters and so many uh, characters that are, you know, the warriors that that uh, society puts off to pasture. Like there's similar attitudes between these two characters, and a ton of Scorsese stuff, a ton of uh, you know war movies. You know, uh, um, it's really interesting to watch them as they put that gun together. Really matter of fact, it feels like a job. It's very practiced. It's a neat scene. They, they did a terrible job arresting them like a really (laughs) really bad job like they just kind of shove them into what looks like a hotel conference room without any sort of pat down or like question of like what have you got in all of that armor uh just you know just some bad bad planning on their part yeah especially because well, especially because there was that thing later. It's a throwaway line somewhere along the way where Worf mentions something insane. Like he's got 18 weapons on him or something, you know, like in that skin sight jumpsuit. He just mentions it in passing. Like, you know, I've always got like 18 weapons on me. You're like, are you counting each finger? Like, I don't <laughs> what? I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very yeah. flat metal and, and bendy along mm-hmm. the bias. You know. I want to know about the shortest <laughs> hostage situation ever. Yes. Right. We ha- Are you talking about the hostage being short? C- correct. Or the time correct. Yes. All right. uh, yes. Yeah. Why not? Uh, 
It's interesting because I wonder what the, I think I, I have a theory as to what the purpose of that scene is, right? Because we, we raise the stakes immediately, right? The, the little girl comes out and Tasha says, go back, get out. And everyone in slow motion is like, what, why? And keeps walking forward. <laughs> and he picks her up and we have this tense moment that is then immediately dissipated, right? But then... We have that really interesting moment afterwards where Tasha says, I, I really thought we were going to have a bad situation there. And Worf gets super pissed at her for yeah. assuming that that is what would have transpired. Um, I, I just interesting storytelling wise, what 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 that tells us. I personally, I thought this was the first nod to the flaws of having families on a military vessel that comes up multiple times over the run of the show to the point it's said outright. Like, somebody asks at one point, like, what, uh, why do you have kids on here? Like, this, I think the Cardassians. Uh, the first time Mark Alamo is a Cardassian that and he's not Goldacott, when he's like, isn't that like a super vulnerability? Like, what is wrong with you? You know? And, but, but to Jimmy's point uh, about about uh, central casting, I thought it was odd they let the kids say something because for those of you not in the industry, they have to pay you more. That the kid, and the only thing the kid says is like, mommy, like afterwards. And I'm like, yeah, that was an odd choice, you know? Intern. That's three total, times the money right there. Intern. They were somebody's kid. They were like, I'm getting my kid in SAG. Put it right over there. Yeah. Just all right, say mommy and boom, got it in one take. Yeah. That's uh yeah, their their dad was the boom Nailed guy it. or something. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, well I I again with that scene, it, it's so silly to me, Kate, because it's all narrated, right? We all know what's happening because Tasha is saying, Wait, we got a hostage situation. Oh well, just kidding. Just he's kidding. now he's walking over, he's giving the child to wharf. The child has wet its pants. Uh, everything's okay now. Uh, everything's done under control. And it, it's so, it's like, I just, again, I felt bad for Denise Crosby and Tashi R uh, because she doesn't get to do anything active uh, to try to resolve that situation, you know? Because if she was a badass and was like, you know, this is, you need to give up the child now, even, you know, drawing her, her face is not even drawn. She's just literally just reporting what's happening and not being active. And I wish she was able to resolve that situation so that she could have, uh, a moment and then earn that thing she has with Worf afterwards was like, oof, got through that. Everything's okay. And, and, you know, I don't even feel like she did anything. She just was literally just reporting the whole time. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunately just not her scene. You know, it, it, it has to be Worf because it's about his identity and, and his struggle in this particular moment. Uh, and, and there's that, that, sense as well of him being the one who they trust and you know right now there's a lot of resonance with that where you know he's he's the one standing in between the cops and the people who haven't done anything yet that they know of you know certainly not going to kill the little kid uh so i mean it's an interesting thing yeah. uh, Didn't they uh, to have somebody? warp stand there huh oh, they, they hadn't shot him yet yeah that's no later. not yet this is another that's one of later. those times yeah. that it's like the the crushing difficulty of getting into Starfleet Academy doesn't quite line up where because, you know, we're told when Wesley's going through it, that is like this, like gruelingly arduous thing that, you know, literally everyone is the best of the best of right. the best of the best. And then you routinely have derpy Starfleet people like those dudes in the hallway that like, don't try and get behind cover. Don't try and do anything. Oh, pachoo, 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 pachoo. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. yeah. 
They get taken out very quickly. Yep. It is upsetting yeah. how, how much they are overpowered by a makeshift thing that they just made. But it's the it's the warrior race that they're taking <laughs> on. How could they not? Well, and they don't have, you know, the uh, the rehearsal time that that might uh, <laughs> allow them to do some more uh, battle work in this particular episode. So it's turn around, reveal my entire body, get shot in chest, slowly yeah. crumpled to ground. Yes. That's about what we had the budget There's to do. There's a terrible, terrible directing moment when they have Worf look at his Klingon brothers and then back at Tasha and then look back and look again. I mean, that is absolutely terrible there's no situation in a sentient life when you have to look here look there look back look back and forth like you know what's behind you you know what your choices are there you know what your choices are here it's, my theory is that and then you they go to told him well that my theory is that they said all right look back and forth we'll find you know a couple of looks that work just look back and forth for 20 seconds or so and then they're done and they chose a much too long yeah. cut of this whole to do Mr. Dorn any service. They, kind of, I mean, yeah. If I was Tasha, I would have been like, are, are you betraying us? Like, what are you looking <laughs> at him for? Look at yeah. me. What's going on? <laughs> well, she doesn't handle on. it very well. She's not like, hey, look, there's something going on. It's just like, Worf, step aside. And he's like, wait, what? what's happening? Like, I think that's what he's yeah. a little bit confused at first, and then he realizes what the situation is. But yeah, I, I don't think uh, Tasha said the right words in order to make him feel not threatened. And I mean, again, I get it. You're like, these are guests. These are, you know, arguably, if not the first, one of a very small handful of Klingons I've ever made. I've ever met. They're making some very compelling points, quite frankly, and. <laughs> And they just want to and, see the battle yeah, bridge. What's right, wrong with that? Like, I don't. I mean, these like warmongering <laughs> anti-peace Klingons want to see our point of uh, technical supremacy. I don't see why <laughs> there's any drawbacks to there. I also, I one of my favorite things in that too was they were. This was when they were still teasing separating the saucer section, but hadn't done it yet. You notice how quick Riker pulls that one. Something might be wrong. We go separate saucer section. My young friend, hold on. No, they did it earlier already, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, they 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 separated this. They the do, I thought they did they it in episode one. They do do it in Encountered Farpoint. You're right. It would, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody nerded out. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. But still, you know, that he's kind of. But I think at this point, yeah. more, Maurice Hurley had to be like, uh, we got to make sure we mention this because we haven't mentioned it in like yeah. 10 episodes. And well, you know, it's a big deal. It's, right. the, it's Chekhov smoking, right. you know, uh, saucer separation. <laughs> we have to they, mention it now. What, and then there's the one later on where. Um, where they're pinned it, they're pinned down by that war machine remember the like the machine that killed its creators and like they they had the holographic um, drones on the planet and the big holographic drone in orbit isn't that the one where they mm-hmm. separate it and this they fight it 2v1 with the the saucer and the in the drive section fighting right yeah. but it, they that's the next episode i think is it the next it's 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 around there yeah it's I, still fairly early but maybe. um they uh it's, it's also interesting to me how much footage they reuse because when the klingon cruiser appears at the end that's from star trek the motion picture that uh that when the klingon comes rolling right. in which is funny because they did so much of that stuff with practical models that you would think if you still got the model it's not that hard to shoot but i mean i guess you got it you're like here's a warbird in space gg yeah yeah so, you got yeah. it 
Got they it. did. Why use it? They used a matte painting from uh, the motion picture in this one too when they were on the freighter. They've been doing that for decades. Uh, though. there's those memes yeah. going around where they show you Jungle Book in um, Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> Sword and in the Stone, the exact and same, the same walk and mm-hmm. jump and like they just they've been doing that for a long time. Well, to move us a little further along in the plot, let's go ahead to the engine room and the final confrontation between Lieutenant Worf and the commander. Go ahead, Kate. I have my new favorite pickup line, which is, I have tasted your heart. Mm, I wrote that down too. So fucking good. (laughs) Shut, I've tasted your heart. That's that's just killer. And let's, we can't forget, I mean, these warriors are, they're poet warriors if, if they're not anything else. Their grasp on the English language and how beautiful they use metaphor <laughs> and simile, and they paint wonderful pictures. I mean, I can see why I would want to see Klingon and, and or uh, Shakespeare and Klingon because these guys, uh, they are very beautifully spoken people. Well, and I just I just say Worf when he's talking to uh, when he, when he's sort of sounding out and, and trying to diffuse the situation and, and they're in that, that moment, he's saying some really beautiful things. And it reminded me of last week when he just happens upon Wesley in, uh, mm. uh, <laughs> uh, and, and gives him, you know, amazing advice. There's just this, uh, it, it suddenly made sense. He and Deanna made more sense to me <laughs> that there is this there. He's very good at understanding, uh, people and and psyche and and emotion and like he's he's just very well and he and dax make sense in that lens yeah. as well Deanna just... and will aren't aren't in this episode um awesome, awesome. <laughs> right i was just thinking exactly mm-hmm. it's the cell phone is it because solution everybody that already about? knew how yep. the klingons felt they're yeah. like listen we know they're angry and they're dangerous okay <laughs> yeah i'm like to shout out to the klingon opera octu and malota by the way uh, as we're talking about them performing y- you know um okay this whole it, it, it's still weird to me to think that I think this is the peak representation of the Klingons when it was their first one. Like everything less than this is like sub this to, you know, to, yeah. to me in the in the in the next generation, at least uh, arguably into Deep Space Nine. Um, well, the Martok was, you know, a pretty good character when he finally comes along. Um, but I think Worf starting out again to go back to that noble savage thing is he's the tamed animal. In, in the, you know, he is the right. well-trained wolf, you know, that everybody's not too sure what he's going to do, but he's probably only going to bite the people we want him to. And then you have these two come along that aren't, you know, like they understand when to bear their teeth. And it, and it is such a striking contrast of how maybe not domesticated, but civilized wolf has become everything they say about him as insults is true. Which, to Jimmy's point, you know, he he does reject what they're talking about. He's like, no, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But no, though. And then, yes, you you do get you do get to see the other Klingons <laughs> and the fact that pretty much all of them kind of back Worf on this. And that's when you get the nod to Worf is them being like, hey, when you're done with Starfleet, maybe come join us. Because next time we go to the home world, which is not the planet Kling, by the way, shout out to that. It's now the... Uh, not cling. Right. Even, even they were like, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not cling. Maybe, maybe not cling. This is yeah. stupid. It's so funny too because I never. When I watch it, I don't hear cling as a planet reference, even though I know it was. I, I've always because I only learned today that that was what it was supposed to be. I always thought it was like 
the the proper noun representation of every nope. Klingon person. Like Klingon. all of Klingon. Like a Kling of like, Klingons. <laughs> the Klingdom. The Kling. You know, dude. but no, it's so fascinating. They 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 heard it and they're like, ooh, Ooh, let's never do that, that again. Scene. It's kind of important. Got to think Ooh. of a better name. I mean, and to that dude's credit, he delivers it like he's serious <laughs> about it, though. Um, yeah, but 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 you know, when we get to the <laughs> home world, you know, then it's Worf, son of Moog. Moog's a traitor. You're a traitor. It like screw you and your ancestors. It's kind of the the <laughs> the next time he interacts with his people. But at least here, they were kind of like, hey, bro, maybe you're not a horrific soulless sellout. Cool, cool, cool. And credits. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, when was uh, what's the timeline here? The so this episode happens before um, Undiscovered Country, where we meet yes. Warp's father. But do we meet? Uh, do we meet any other Klingons? Is or, or does Worf meet the Klingons that call him a traitor and because of what his dad did? Do we see that before Undiscovered Country, or is so, that TNG episodes? Undiscovered after Country Undiscovered is ninety one. Um, let's see. Um, which I just happened to watch the other night because uh, it's season three, I think, that his uh, sins of brother the shows up. Is that episode and it is season three, episode 17. So that was 1990. So, no, that that before I just said, I just said you it was know. before. So they use that for Undiscovered yeah. Country. Okay, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I want to. Talk about the the confrontation just for a moment too, because I have an an OSHA complaint that I feel like that glass shouldn't have broken so easily just from having right. a body fall. Like if it's going to be up there where people are but walking, it was a Klingon warrior's death that he threw himself yeah. in lamentation yeah. down upon the floor. The first thing that hit it was the gun. Maybe it went there off we right go. when it connected yeah, with the glass. This is another one of those you know. things, too, that it's like I realized he wanted the warrior's death, but I kind of feel like it was more of a suicide by cop thing. Because if he wanted to kill them all, he could have. Oh, totally. Like at any point. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it was both of them acknowledging that. Yeah. And, and, you know, Worf drawing down on him was as much a choice of of the, the dead as yeah. the, the one who lived. They'll pray to the know. classic villainy of oh, yeah. well, but arguably suicide <laughs> would not have been a warrior's death getting shot was you know yeah he wouldn't have got right. he wouldn't have totally. got in the that's exactly if he, it. Killed, if he just shot the shot the delivery crystal yeah. <laughs> and if you're and if you're holding a gun it's not mm -hmm. uh execution either mm -hmm. it was so, an imminent threat like it was Worf doing him a favor towards the end it's a really interesting way to do it too like it comes down to murder like he didn't make a move Worf's just like, I've told you to do it twice. You've communicated to me. You're not. I know what you want. I'm willing to do it. I've said my piece. Now I'm going to shoot you in the yeah. chest. And it, I, I kind of love that I'm gonna shoot you with of that death. Yeah, and I like that uh, Worf is a true badass warrior. Because he's not telling you that he is. He's not, you know, just going on and on about bloodlust and I'm a warrior. He just... He fucking kills you when it's time to kill. <laughs> and then the still. other times he's, you know, he's a little peaceful. He's giving good advice to kids. <laughs> <laughs> he loves what, his son when that it? person comes <laughs> along. But you know, this this is a true warrior. He's like, I'm not gonna tell you I'm a badass. I'm just gonna kill you. And it's, as you die, you're gonna know. Oh yeah. Alexander will live tough. to grow up and learn nothing from it, so it's fine. 
<laughs> I accept your challenge, Father. <laughs> Alexander. That's one, one of the things, one, one trope that I, I hate the most in storytelling is the I just want to be normal trope, especially in superhero media. Um, the worst example mm. being Heroes, the cheerleader right. Hayden Pantieri's character was like, I just want to be normal. I don't want to be immortal and indestructible. Right. It's like, girl, sit down. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> 150 yeah, years like into it, I'm listening to that. It's such a burden. It's like, it isn't, though. The rest of us are weak and frail. Stop it. So with, with Alexander, the same thing. I realize I hail from this proud warrior race, but I'm one quarter human. And so you're like, ah. And then, and then he finally decides to embrace being a Klingon and is bad at that, too. The, the biggest, biggest dangling plot hole ever in Star Trek history is Alexander comes back from the frickin' future. And Worf is oddly fine with that. And then I'm like, and then where does he go? Like, is future Alexander still here? Don't you have, like, some other questions? Uh, <laughs> then he's just like, well, okay, sorry that you, like, perverted the rules of space and time to come back and warn me for me to just be, like, YOLO. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you must have hate. Oh, you didn't even see that. You haven't even seen that, dude. In disco. In oh, discovery. he was about to do spoilers. Oh, oh, no. just, oh, you, you haven't you know, even yeah, seen okay. that you, shit. You don't have to spoil it. But if, 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 if there, Alexander if there comes is, back, no. If there you haven't is even some seen payoff that. for that, fine. You don't because, even know. Well, but even if there is some payoff, it's 25-ish years. So, uh, a long, yeah. Unplanned, too. Probably yeah. long, unplanned. Long, I, Sorry, Katie, um, we're trying to say something when I interrupted you with my, my tirade. Oh, no, no, no. I was just I was just going to say that he's the scrappy do of the next generation because he's, he's just there. We don't want him to be, but he's important. But he is adorable when he first shows up and he's the littlest Klingon. You're like, oh, little right? bro. Oh, he's so you'll tiny. grow to disappoint us all. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I, I, I would hope if they ever got around to canonically showing the scene where Worf is is assassinated on on the, on the you know the 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 chamber floors on the home world, they go full Back to the Future two with the blood squib like Alexander warned me. And it should make sounds. And wasn't wasn't Alexander grown up? Wasn't that yeah. Tony Todd as well? It, it, yeah, yeah. Tony but he, it was it wasn't Tony. Right, no, 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 no. Played no. Tony the brother. Todd is Jake grown up. Yeah. He's Jake grown up. He is Kern. Jake grown up. That's right. I'm sorry. Cisco grown up. That's right. And also Candyman. And in my mind, Jake. That's right. Candyman. That's right. I feel like we are we are winding down with the episode. We have the the final conversation between Worf and Canera. Uh, uh, where we talk about the empty shells and dispose of them mm -hmm. as you will, or as you see fit, I think was, they was what it was. That, there's an nice echo that they mentioned a couple of times. Couple like, times. oh, they're just empty shells. Because yeah. we didn't talk too much about the the yelling, the the, ah, the, the Klingon death, right? Guttural ah, death ritual. And how strange I, that is. But yeah, I that's, love it's amazing. that that is a warning <laughs> to the dead that a Klingon, that a warrior is mm -hmm. on the way. I think that's, that was that just is incredible. Badass. That is really incredible. Really incredible. 
Um, and really the whole conversation between Worf and Canera, the, the kind of coded way they speak to each other in front of other people, they're, they're both thinking of 12 or 13 different things at once, and it's it's really a pleasure to watch both of those actors mm-hmm. go through and that them, conversation. And them like warily eyeing Worf, and he's like, no, I'm not leaving. And then he's like, no, but oh. I'm really not leaving, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just being polite. <laughs> yeah, that, I right. love that. I feel like there was like him trying to get a zinger because uh, he has none of his like one liners in this in this episode. And that was him trying to be. Yeah, no, you know, us what, Klingons are known for being polite. <laughs> we are the most polite. Yeah. One last deadpan. <laughs> All right. So let's go through kind of final uh, impressions with the episode. I mean, I'm a big fan of this one. I really enjoyed watching it again. Uh, Greg, what were your thoughts all the way through? How many scale of one to ten prosthetics? How many? You I this one? actually wanted to shout out the prosthetics in general because, uh, you know, that Klingon makeup is so well done in Worf. Obviously, it makes total sense. But you get those that that sh- that shot of them uh, doing the, the peer pressure. And it's all you're doing is looking at those prosthetics and they look good. Uh, so I'm going to go with seven out of seven prosthetics on this one. Um, because it does for all of its faults of 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 narrating what is happening in each one of the scenes i was compelled uh the first time i, I got to rewatch this uh as an adult here and uh, i'd forgotten a lot of the 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 plot points and 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 getting wharf's backstory in a way that felt organic um i felt for him and i felt for that choice that he ends up making uh and uh, the final note I'll say is that, man, I really need to start hiding some gunpowder in the tip of my boot uh, so that when I die, uh, people know how to build guns from my boot thing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Kate, what do you think? Uh, what, what, did you, what was your overall feeling on this one? Six and a half visual acuity transmitters. Uh, I really like the fact that we get to find out more about Worf and uh, that there's a, a Geordi storyline as well. Two characters that we have been getting to know a little bit better along the way. Um, but that this is the first episode where it's really Worf-centric, which uh, I am a fan of. Uh, yeah, I did not remember this one very well. This was one of those episodes that was uh, fairly new to me upon rewatch. Um, I did notice there was this great moment where after their friend dies, they've done the, the, the final ceremony or, you know, their, their ritual. And he goes and he takes the thing, the, the horn off of the guy's shoe and pockets. It's just such a beautiful little like planting of it's, it's as we always talk about Chekhov. We've even talked about it already in this episode, but it's, you know, (laughs) Chekhov's boots spike uh, because yeah. we know we're going to see it sometime. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's a good episode. You can dance to it. All right. What do you what do you think, Jimmy? I will also <laughs> uh, rate it by visual acuity transmitter. That's and I'll give it seven. Although, um, well, I love it. I absolutely love uh, the Klingons in this, it, as they always do with aliens. They're one dimensional, but at least. Uh, as has been brought up, they, there was something to be afraid of with them, unlike we've seen with uh, the other baddies that were supposed to replace the Klingons in this season, but didn't come anywhere close. Um, right. What I really am truly and almost heartbroken about is uh, that that never became a verb. 
because I think it would have been great to hear Captain Picard say, hey, Jordy, go vat that shit. <laughs> or are you vatting this? Instead of go look out the window and tell yeah. me what you see, which we've already had four or five this of. This is an incredible vat. <laughs> like, this is a missed opportunity with Star Trek. It would confuse the European market, and, really, uh, I, think, I think, unless they, they came up with a different name for it. Uh, d- Dave, let us know what you <laughs> thought of the episode and how we can get in touch with you and uh, uh, follow what I you're up to. I also give it seven out of seven on the prosthetics. I think this was when they finally started transitioning out of the greasy look that they all had early on in the show. Um, you know, Data and Worf in particular, uh, the fact that they could make uh, Riker and Geordi sweaty and Data wasn't, you know, and like Worf's not like shining constantly, uh, which is just they kind of had found found the groove by the 19th episode. So I thought that was good. I do think this was the best episode of the Klingons. Arguably, this is the best episode with the Klingons ever. Um, that if and if it's not number one, it's like way high up there as them being warriors and poets and them being smart and tactical and shrewd and cunning and you know still honorable like everything that makes klingons klingons is present in this up to and including the drinking like they just get out of this like random apocalyptic battle and the first thing they want is to like knock one back with their klingon bro here and like talk about war um so quintessential klingons in this one and uh, also shout out to they the ferengi were still a menace at this point if you recall the first few times they mentioned the ferengi is ooh the ferengi and even when they do finally show up with the the energy whip and Armin Shimmerman there from the beginning, shout out to Armin Shimmerman. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, this 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 is one um, that that I particularly enjoyed. Uh, I mean, the, I, I don't know that there's any episode of the Next Generation that I dislike, but this is definitely one of the top ones. Uh, and you can find me, B. Dave Walters, and B. Dave Walters everywhere. I say words about things. I do a lot of nerd raging about things that I am interested in. Uh, word is I play a little Dungeons and Dragons on occasion uh, and some other stuff. So uh, follow me on the Tweetograms uh, at B. Dave Walters to find out the things I'm doing. Also, technically, I am a canonical lieutenant commander in Starfleet because of Shield of Tomorrow. So I, I, I played Lieutenant Commander Forkin Kunert, who is a, a um, um, oh, crap. I can't remember even what I, Trill, Trill. I just kept thinking Dax. I'm like, no, Dax is a person, not a species. Yes, I was a Trill. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a Yep, life goal unlocked there. Fantastic. Thank you all for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Trills come back in disco, Dave. Trills come back in disco. (laughs) Lots of trills there. (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining us, our cultural bridge officers and our special guest, B. Dave Walters. Thank you all. Let's all go get our pants pants wet. That effect on you, Greg Tito. Mm. Thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at Re-Engage, capital T-N-G, to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric Gratton, who is me, is at Eric Falls Down. That's Eric with a K on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy G is of course at the Jimmy G on Insta. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Re-Engage is edited and mixed by the amazing Krista Curry at Krista from Glee on Twitter. Krista with a K. And Krista.Curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. 
theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you for listening. Standing by for the saucer section to re-engage.